Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This is an encore episode of an earlier episode of the podcast. We're going to take the next couple of weeks to put out some older talks from Theopolis before we jump into our new series on the book of James. This talk was originally published years ago on the podcast, back in the first 100 episodes or so, and we think it's still very timely and helpful in thinking biblically about time and the physical world that we live in. We are gearing up and are very excited to have our course on a theology of history next week with Richard Bledsoe and Peter Lightheart. Jim Jordan will also be in town for that class, and it should be a really excellent time of teaching and worship together. Do be aware of our summer conference on July 18th and 19th here in Birmingham, Alabama. The topic this year is Victory and Hope. Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, Trevor Lawrence, and others will be giving a variety of talks with hope and victory as the telos. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Jim Jordan discussing Gnosticism and Preterism. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and for the way they teach us how to think as well as how to live. And we ask that you would purge our thoughts this morning of invalid and unworthy ways of thinking about you and your creation and help us to be true Catholics and not Gnostics. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Preterism versus Gnosticism or taking time in history seriously or how a preterist approach to prophecy fits into the continuing need to exorcise Gnosticism from the church with a special reference to the Calvinistic tradition. You've got to get the beam out of your own eye before you fool with the motes and everybody else's. And most of us are living and moving and having our being within a Calvinistic type of tradition. It's got a lot of Gnosticism in it. Gnosticism is a tendency. Throughout history, the Christian church has had to guard against the heresy of Gnosticism. But Gnosticism is not an ordinary heresy because it doesn't manifest itself as a set of definite beliefs. Rather, Gnosticism is a tendency. It's a tendency to replace the historic facts of Christianity with philosophical ideas. Gnosticism is the tendency to dehistoricize and dephysicalize the Christian religion. Gnosticism transforms history into ideology and facts into philosophy. Gnosticism tends to see religion as man's reflections about God and reality, instead of as God's revelation of himself and his word to man. As a tendency, Gnosticism has always plagued the church. It's alive and well today, openly in liberalism, and in a more concealed fashion in evangelicalism. As we start our reflections on Gnosticism, then, it's well to start with the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed was produced in the early days of the church by whom we don't know, but it is, in its essence, an anti-Gnostic symbol or creed. The great anti-Gnostic creed of the Christian faith is the Apostles' Creed. The core of the Apostles' Creed is a rehearsal of historical events. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's just a record of historical events. It's not doctrine as such. It's not ideas as such. It just says these things happened. And you know, to a lot of Protestants, that doesn't seem like much. 
for reasons that we'll get to. The reason the Creed recites these events is that the Gnostic movements in the early church tended to downplay or even to reject them. It doesn't really matter if these things happen, said the Gnostics. What matters is the meaning and the truths and the great ideas that we get from meditating on these things. Substitute a religion of historical events for a religion of ideas. The Apostles' Creed affirms history against the anti-historical or philosophical approach to reality. We don't really need history. We want to think about the ideas because salvation means getting out of this world and getting into the realm of ideas, not in biblical religion. The Apostles' Creed gives us a religion based on fact instead of a religion based on ideas. These are facts. God has done certain things and changed the world. Whether you believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, the world has changed. The skies have been turned inside out. These are facts. Whether you realize it or not, whether you believe it or not, the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, whether people realize it or not. People are all in the kingdom, whether they realize it or not. When we do evangelism, when we go out to Borneo or wherever, we don't go out there really to tell people they need to come into the kingdom. We go out there and tell them that the kingdom was set up 2,000 years ago, and we're just letting them know that it's, it's happened. We want them to believe this and accept it and live in terms of it, but it's a historical fact. It's a historical fact that the kingdom was set up. It's a historical fact that Jesus is king. He's king whether they accept him or not. We're just letting them in on it. Hey, you don't need to worship these idols anymore because Jesus is now king. The Apostles' Creed is the affirmation of a religion of revelation, wherein God speaks first and then we speak, a dialogue that takes place in historical circumstances predestinated by God. And that's over against a religion that's philosophical speculation. We're not just speculating about things. We're not meditating on ideas. We're in a dialogue with God, and he talks. And this is a God who is not a great idea. It's a God who talks, a God who actually writes things with his own hand. A religion of revelation where God speaks and we speak, a dialogue that takes place in time. You can't have a conversation that doesn't take place in time. I have to listen to you, then you have to listen to me. Right now you have to listen to me. The Apostles' Creed affirms a religion of action against religions of passive contemplation. Gnosticism is contemplative. We think about these ideas and we feel good. We have a mystical experience. The Apostles' Creed is telling us God came into the world and did a whole bunch of actions. And since we're his images, that implies we're supposed to do certain things. And the first things we do are sacramental actions. Do this, Jesus said. You know, what we do with the Lord's Supper is we translate that into think about this. Think about this. Understand that it, well, it's not transubstantiated. And it's not physical change. It's not a mere symbol. But it's this. We've got to get the doctrines right. Once you understand all that, then you might be allowed to do it. And doing it doesn't involve much. It's just this much bread and this much wine. But the, Jesus doesn't say, understand this in memory of me. He says, do it. If you do it, understanding will gradually come. If you don't do it the right way, then you won't get the right kinds of understanding. We're told to do something. God did something, now we do something. God speaks to us, and then we have to do something. We have to say amen back to him. God does something in history that's physical. We do something back that's physical. Well, and what Hinduism is like, 
That's not what Gnosticism was like. The Apostles' Creed is telling us a very physical, this-worldly, time-centered kind of religion, which is different from everything else. But our hearts want to move us away from this because our hearts, if we're regenerated, don't, but our flesh wants to move us away from this. And our hearts want to do the right thing, but the flesh runs interference. Now, what are some examples of Gnostic ways of thinking and acting We'll take this in two sections. One, downgrading the physical world, and second, downgrading history. The Gnostic tendency downgrades the physical world, and it downgrades history. And the only way to really get a handle on this is to illustrate it. So in this lecture, we'll have about 150 illustrations of the point, and then you'll have a package in your mind of what Gnosticism is, and you'll realize that you don't want to be a Gnostic. Gnosticism rears its head in orthodox circles, Whenever systematic theology runs roughshod over biblical theology, which is the study of the unfolding history of the covenant in the Bible, it rears its head whenever abstract theological language like catechisms overwhelms the concrete pictures and symbols that God chose in the Bible to communicate his truth, like in the Proverbs. How do you teach your kids? What is justification? What is sanctification? Our catechism is a series of definitions of abstract nouns. But the Proverbs is a series of visual pictures and very striking things. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. That's a little bit more concrete than what we usually think we do. How do we communicate truth? Well, I'm not saying that abstract language is wrong. You see, I said the Gnostic tendency occurs when abstract theological language overwhelms and replaces and becomes more important than the concrete pictures and symbols that God uses in the Bible. Gnosticism shows up whenever the ritual of the Lord's Supper becomes a means of devotion and contemplation rather than an action performed in God's presence. Gnosticism shows up whenever the supper is restricted from small children because they haven't reached some age of reason. You don't have to reach the age of reason in order to be hungry. Hunger comes first, reason comes later. And we'll come back to this in a minute. Your brain is the deadest part of your body. It's the one part the cells don't reproduce. And the fact is, although this sounds completely wrong to us because of our Gnosticism, the Lutheran philosopher Rosenstock Husey points out, it's actually our physical bodies that stimulate our brains to everything we do. We just sit in a chair and do nothing all day long. If we didn't get hungry, you get hungry, we have to move out and do something. Talk about this in a minute. The body motivates the brain. It's important. Gnosticism shows up whenever the sequence of covenant renewal in worship is ignored and only the performance of certain elements is considered important. Gnosticism shows up when the body is regarded as unimportant so that we no longer need to kneel in worship or greet one another with a holy kiss. For our purposes, the Gnostic tendency is a tendency to downplay history so that the cross becomes an idea more than an event. The Gnostic tendency in Protestant theology makes it easy for theologians to dismiss the chronology of the Bible asserting without any evidence that it contains gaps and focusing only on the supposed ideas contained in such passages as Genesis 5 and 11. The intimately time-grounded character of biblical revelation is rather easily set aside by the Gnostic. Now, it's obvious to you that I'm reading something here, isn't it? This is not the normal, easy-going Jim Jordan presentation. Well, I'm reading from some material I wrote in a defense of historical view of Genesis 1, because in the same way, 
If you don't take history very seriously, then you can convert the six days of Genesis 1 into six big ideas. And you don't even think about it. Oh, those aren't really days. They're just big ideas. Because Gnostic thinking is generally hidden from view, a series of illustrations will help us see how pervasive it is. For instance, the incarnation and the resurrected and transfigured body. Biblical religion affirms that God entered human life as a real human being in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and that Jesus' physical body was resurrected and transfigured but still physical form. Touch me, he says. Stop grabbing hold of me, he says to Mary Magdalene. Watch me eat this fish, he says. It's pretty physical. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. And that physical body abides with him forever, but there's always been a tendency to deny this. Early Christian docetists, Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, or I-S-T for the person downgrades the physical. The docetists, or docetists, did not like the idea that God incarnated himself in lowly matter, and thus said that Jesus was a merely spiritual being. Others were willing to say that the Son of God humbled himself to take on material flesh, but that he gave it up at the resurrection or that he gave it up at the ascension, or that he'll give it up at the end of history. The Reformed theologian of the Netherlands, A.A. A. von Ruler, says he's going to give it up at the end of history. Why should he want to keep it, he says. Well, why wouldn't he want to keep it? The creation is good. The incarnation is not an act of humiliation in itself. You get a beautiful garment and you put it on, you're glorifying yourself. When God puts on the garment of the creation... He's glorifying himself. So why would he ever de-glorify himself by taking it off? You see, behind this idea that he wants to get rid of his body is the idea that it's degrading to have a body. But that isn't so. God makes the universe the same way we make a garment of clothes. And we put it on to make us look good. I mean, I'm not wearing this to make me look ugly. It makes me look good. I know you all wish you could dress like this, but you can't, because I'm the only one who's got one of these on today. <laughs> See, we think this way, but that's not the way the Bible thinks. The creation is good. It moves from glory to glory. When Jesus puts on human flesh, he's glorifying himself. Now, he puts on flesh that's wounded by sin, but then it's transfigured. Why would he ever want to give it up? Well, he doesn't. But you even have Reformed theologians, because of this Gnostic tendency, saying, well, surely he's going to give up this mere human material body at some point and go back to being just God and not man. Why? Why would he do that? The Bible never indicates that or hints at it. All of this is predicated on the notion there's something bad about matter. Use what word you want, bad, inferior, or something. Something's wrong with it. It's a denial of the goodness of creation and a denial of the goodness of human bodily existence. In authentic Christianity, the spiritual body is not an immaterial body, but a physical body energized by the Holy Spirit in a new, fuller way than before. Moreover, there's nothing humiliating about the incarnation of the Son of God. I've already mentioned this. God made a beautiful creation for the Son to take on human flesh is like a man putting on a beautiful garment he's made. The only thing humiliating about the Incarnation was that the Son entered into a humanity that bore the effects of sin, which is death. Well, a second zone of thinking that we need to think about in terms of the Gnostic tendency is the sacraments. God's affirmation of the material world 
is seen in the fact that he uses physical water to introduce people into his kingdom. And by the fact that we eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper. Many Christians, however, cannot embrace such physical ideas. Water baptism thus is reduced to a mere symbol instead of a powerful communication from God. And so are the bread and wine of the supper. Such a reduction is not the view of the Protestant reformers who sought to correct the magical views of the papal church without denying that God really acts through such material means. By the 19th century, however, the heirs of the reformers were no longer willing to abide the reformers' starkly materialistic views. Calvinistic theologians like Charles Hodge viewed Calvin's doctrine of the union of believers with Christ's physical humanity in the supper as an uncongenial foreign element in Calvin's thought, having no root in the system. Other Calvinist, Robert Dabney, rejected Calvin even more strongly. And Peter Whitehart's essay, What's Wrong with Transubstantiation, gives you all the quotations there. Calvinistic theologian Benjamin B. Warfield wrote against what he called sacerdotalism, the idea that God communicates saving grace through created means. Yet this guy named Warfield. Such views are commonplace today, but they're fundamentally wrong, and they're not the views of the Reformers. Warfield basically says, well, God has to work immediately on the soul and not from some external means. Well, is that true? Ask yourselves. He doesn't come up with this on his own. I mean, this goes back to Augustine, who really says, you know, it's too bad that God has to use language to communicate to us. It'd be better if he could just operate on us directly. This is not biblical religion. It's a Gnostic element, even though great men say it. God created the universe in such a way that it's designed by him as his means to communicate with man. Does anybody want to say that God saves people apart from his word? But the Bible is a physical book. And when we read it, physical light passes between our physical eyes and the pages of this physical book and stimulates our physical brain. When we hear the word read, physical vibrations in the physical air rattle three physical bones in our ears and stimulate our physical brains. And if I made this loud enough, it would hurt your ears because it's physical. All of this is thoroughly physical and material. These are the means that God has appointed to bring us near to him as God's spirit uses these physical things. Therefore, if God also uses water, oil, bread, and wine to communicate his presence to us, what's so strange about that? Nobody is magically regenerated by water baptism any more than he's magically saved by merely hearing the Bible read aloud. You can go out there to the wicked and read the Bible out loud to them, and the spirit is doing something, but they may not receive it. And you can baptize them, and the Spirit is doing something, but they may not receive it. But the Spirit is doing something. It's not magical. But God has appointed these as his instruments. The reading of the word, the use of water, and those who are saved are saved by means of them. Of course, God is free to make exceptions, but these are the normal means he's appointed. The gentle caress of water is the normal way he puts his loving hands on us and takes us into his arms as a mother gathers up her child. But Warfield wants to get as far away as possible from such physical material things and wants only to speak of God's immediate operations on the soul. So what do we get? Instead of a nice shower of water from above in baptism, we get a few drops. Instead of a good munchable piece of bread, we get a tiny bit of cracker. 
instead of a good slug of alcohol, which makes a real peace-inducing impact on the body and also puts fire inside of you, we get a sip of insipid grape juice. And anointing the sick with oil, which puts them back into the olive tree, as commanded by James 5.14, has largely disappeared. Well, what about physical rituals? Compare the Bible with us. Evangelicals read repeatedly in the Bible that they are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16.16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16.20, 2 Corinthians 13.12, 1 Thessalonians 5.26, and 1 Peter 5.14. Six times. Why is this command repeated so often? <laughs> Could it be because the men of the apostolic church didn't want to do it any more than we did? But evangelicals read right past these commands and gnostically convert them into a command to say hello to one another. Well, it isn't that. I don't know that those Greeks in those early churches wanted to do it either. They had to keep being told to do it. Now, there's right and wrong ways to do it. Not getting into that. Do you know how easy it is for us to read in the New Testament that and say, well, that was their custom then, so we don't need to think about it. Well, if it was just a matter of custom, it wouldn't be in the Word of God. They had all kinds of customs they were doing that God doesn't say anything about. The things he talks about are important. Evangelicals hear God's command in Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and fall down, let us kneel. Well, they don't do it. They only fall down and kneel on the inside. For some reason, they think that such inner kneeling is all God really wants. God doesn't care what our bodies do. All he cares is what our souls do. We read Psalm 150, which commands trumpets and cymbals, though we're satisfied with organs, which might suffice for trumpets but not for cymbals. The more radically Gnosticized traditions in evangelicalism feel that singing without musical instruments is more spiritual. You always get this in Calvinistic churches. Let's sing this stanza, brethren, without any instruments. Let's do it the more spiritual way. Well, actually, when the Spirit comes in the Bible, he comes in this glory cloud, which is real noisy, and which is reproduced in all the noisy instruments around the tabernacle. I mean the temple, not the tabernacle and is also reproduced in Daniel 3 when they have this counterfeit worship scenario, and you've got all these instruments that have to play whenever people are supposed to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Noisy stuff, not quiet stuff. Well, how about covenant history? In fact, the whole progress of history in the Bible is often understood in pagan terms as a movement from the material to the spiritual, from the external to the internal. Thus, the people of the Old Testament were primitives, and they were like children. There's a sense in which that's true, but not in this sense. And God appointed for them carnal and earthly physical rituals. After the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, however, we're spiritual. So God no longer comes to us through such lowly means. It somehow escapes the minds of those who argue this way that sound waves are thoroughly carnal and earthly. Or more importantly, such people are reading the Bible in pagan Greek terms. The movement from the old to the new is indeed a movement toward the spiritual with a capital S, but not a movement toward the non-physical. Rather, it's a movement toward a life characterized by a greater fullness of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God, energizing our physical, carnal, earthly bodies. Water coming on us in baptism and our eating bread and wine are about as external as anything in Israel was commanded to do under the law. The church is every bit as physical as the land of Israel because the church is made up of human beings who are made of dirt. We could go on and on illustrating this anti-material tendency, this fear of the drag of the material world, as if matter rather than sin were man's problem. 
There's a whole history here, the fear of the arts, fear of sexuality, fear of literature. Read Dabney on reading novels. Fear of rich food. Puritans were full of this. You spice up your food, that's the devil's trick. Cotton Mather talks about the evil of spicing up your food. Rejection of enthusiasm in worship. Rejection of hand raising and clapping. Now the Bible talks about doing it. I don't yet raise your hand all the time, but there's some psalms that say to do it. Or lift up hands. Clap hands. This is the way the Bible sets it all out, and we're really estranged from that. And the reason is because Greek philosophy is estranged from all that. The philosophical worldview eliminates all that physical external stuff. Well, a second area of Gnostic ways of thinking and acting is to downgrade the historical aspects of biblical revelation in favor of ideas. We downgrade the physical in favor of some type of incorporeality or immateriality. We downgrade the historical in favor of ideas. One is biblical chronology. The Bible is filled with chronological information and presents a clear, unbroken chronology from the creation of the world to the Babylonian exile. Nobody in the church ever questioned this until the late 19th century. Nobody did. It's become a commonplace now, however, to hear that the Bible is not really concerned with chronology. Warfield says in his essay, oh, the Bible has no interest in these dates. It's just the ideas that are important. There are gaps all over chronology, we're told. Indeed, the 19th century was an age of gap theories, gaps between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, gaps in the chronologies of Genesis 5 and 11, gaps in the chronologies of the kings of Israel and Judah, gaps in the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, gaps all over the place. The gap was between the ears. There are no gaps in the biblical chronology. Such a cavalier approach to a text that abounds in chronological information is only possible when men have already begun to think that chronology and history are not really important. The Bible is constantly giving us chronological information. How can you ignore all that? Well, because your presuppositions are so strong that history doesn't really matter that you say, oh, well, we can play fast and loose with this. Similarly, and this is of relevance to our conference, New Testament prophetic time texts, New Testament writings frequently speak of certain events as drawing near, as at hand, as coming soon, or on this generation. All these time markers used to be taken seriously and were understood to reveal events that were going to take place in the first century soon after Jesus' ascension. A conversion of many people, a falling away of many into apostasy, a great persecution at the hands of Jews, apostates, and Romans, and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. When we turn to 20th century evangelical writings, and especially those of Calvinists, all millennial Calvinists, we find that these time markers have somehow been eternalized. God is always near. The events are always at hand. This generation is always the generation of judgment. The events that are near at hand are simultaneously far off and also all the time. Predictions about first century events are transferred off into the far future. I'm not saying that one cannot apply, as I made that point last night and we'll make it again, the prophecies apply repeatedly in history. But the words near at hand and coming soon don't mean some type of eternalized soonitude or nearness. Well, he's always near. Well, it's always soon. It's always the last hour. No, it isn't. That's Looney Tunes. That's Hinduism. 
the Bible exists on the clock. Dischronologizations. This become very easy for 20th century evangelicals, again, especially the Calvinists, to downplay the time-groundedness of biblical interpretation. It's no accident that the framework interpretation is most common in Calvinistic circles. Modern evangelical expositors are very quick to say that certain passages of the historical books of the Bible are dischronologized. Well, sometimes they are, but for obvious reasons. Genesis 37 to 50 follows the course of Joseph's life without any dischronologization. But in order to contrast with Joseph is Judah, and Judah's whole life is given in Genesis 38. And so what happens is you start with Joseph and Judah, and Joseph is sold into slavery and goes to Egypt and is bought by Potiphar. And then we go back to Judah, and we follow Judah's life, and then his marriage and the death of his wife and his sons growing up and their marriages. And we move down 30, 40, 50 years into the future in that whole story. And then we come back and we pick up Joseph. Now, that's real easy to see. That's not a problem. But based on this, we get dischronologizations all over the place. You study Ezra and Nehemiah, they'll tell you that the letters that are there in Ezra, early chapters in Ezra, they're from all over the place. They're just all gathered there working through the uh, life of Isaac recently in teaching Sunday school. Isaac's visit to Gerar is supposed to be dischronologized because nothing is said about Jacob and Esau in that passage, so they couldn't have been born yet. Well, just because the passage doesn't mention them doesn't mean they hadn't been born. As a matter of fact, the reason that they don't show up is that they're already grown up. They're already grown, and so it's not obvious that they're their children. But it's just real easy to play jigsaw puzzle now with passages of the Bible. Very quick way of solving problems, to dischronologize things. You get this a lot in gospel study, too. The assumption that the gospels are all topically arranged and things have been moved all around, and that's because of parallel passages. What we have to understand is, yeah, that sometimes that's true. But sometimes the parallel passages just mean that Jesus said the same thing on different occasions to different people. And they're not out of chronological order. So, moving then to our next topic... Point five, Gnosticism is of the essence of original sin, if we consider it broadly enough. It's the desire to view reality in a timeless fashion, as if we were God. Gnosticism is always with the church as a result, because we always have original sin, and part of us is always wanting to be God and be outside of time. It's always the task of the church to exorcise Gnosticism whenever possible. Gnosticism inevitably denigrates history in favor of ideology. It will tend toward the elevation of philosophical and systematic theology over the history of redemption. It will tend to view the history of salvation as some type of holy history, an idea of history separate from chronology. It will tend to elevate the university and seminary over the church, ideology over sacrifice, replacing the white alb of the biblical elder with the black professorial gown of the Genevan teacher. You get the university as the model instead of the church as the model. The Genevan gown is a professorial robe, but a minister is not a professor. He's something else altogether. That was a big mistake in Geneva. Philosopher Eric Fergolin, or as some people say Vogelin, he charges that John Calvin's Institutes is a Gnostic Koran because it's a systematic theology. It just systematizes everything and fixes it in history once and for all. Is that true? 
Not really, because what he doesn't realize is that Calvin's Institutes is a summary of all the stuff that he puts together would be in other places, and that most of what Calvin does is expound the Scripture and deal with it historically. Calvin has no problem with biblical chronology. He's very much in favor of it, just as Luther was. You read Luther on Genesis, he's always working with the numbers and saying who lived when, you know, when Luther says that when Rebecca couldn't get pregnant, why? She just went off and talked to Seth about it. Well, Seth was still alive, according to the chronology he was using. Well, I misspoke myself there. Shem was whom I meant. Shem was still alive. Well, Luther is thinking, who's alive when? He's very history grounded here. It's not a series of ideas. That's the right way to do it. He had the detail wrong at that point, by the way. He was using a different chronology, but it's okay. Move was right. What systematic theology originally was was what we call common places. There were, in traditional expositions of the Bible, certain passages that when you got to that passage, you stopped moving through the text and you gave kind of a systematic discussion. For instance, when you're going through Romans and you get to Romans 13 about the magistrate, then you stop going through Romans and you say, okay, now we're going to have a series of lectures on the Christian doctrine of the civil magistrate. And you give a little systematic thing on that, and then you move back into Romans. And that is called a common place. It's a place where all the doctrines that are related to that area are discussed. What happened at the Reformation was theologians would produce all these expositions of the Bible, and then somebody would come and gather out all their common places and put out a book called The Common Places of Martin Bootser, The Common Places of Peter Martyr Vermigli. What that was, was they went through all their Bible expositions and pulled out the section where he discussed the Trinity, and pulled out the section where he discussed the Incarnation, pulled out the section where he discussed the Resurrection, and made a book out of it. And Calvin's pretty much does something very similar in the Institutes. They're controversies. But after a while, you see, systematic theology develops in people's minds to the idea that we've got a complete system that accounts for everything. And we don't. I mean... My systematic theology doesn't tell me anything about hair, but the Bible has a lot to say about hair. Hair growing out of your skin, hair growing out of your head, hair being cut off, hair being ripped out, hair being put on fire and burned up. But I can't find anything about hair in Burkhoff's systematic theology. It is not a hirsute theology. But God wants us to think about hair. Hair grows out of your skin and you're made of dirt. So hair is like the plants that grow out of the earth on the third day. Not only that, but if you look at those jungles out there, there are elephants in them, and if you got a microscopic photography, you know there are little elephants and things down there. You've seen them, right? It's a jungle down there. I'm serious. A telling statement by a Calvinistic church historian illustrates the pervasiveness of Gnostic tendencies in the 19th century of which we're the heirs. Notice in the Apostles' Creed, and this is a statement about the Apostles' Creed, it gives us these specific historical and chronological markers. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He rose on the third day, not on the second day, not on the fourth day, not in some general always rising sense. It's not just an idea. It happened on a particular day. These statements were pointed directly against the Gnostics who said history didn't matter. 
But now the Scottish church historian William Cunningham's historical theology, which is kept in print and is not devoid of usefulness, starts off with an absolutely abominable chapter on the Apostles' Creed. He says, it's not entitled to much respect, and it's not fitted to be of much use as a summary of the leading doctrines of Christianity. Well, and why does he say this? Well, because for Cunningham, the important doctrines are the more timeless and theoretical ones. The fact the Apostles' Creed pits the world's only history-grounded religion against all the rest doesn't register with him. The Apostles' Creed, he writes, is a very inadequate and defective summary of the leading principles of Christianity because it does not go into, and this is a close quote, but then to summarize him, and the reason is it does, because it doesn't go into such matters as predestination, justification by faith, and the two natures of Christ. For Cunningham, doctrines and principles have nothing to do with the recounting of historical events, or little to do with it. Now, does this make Cunningham a Gnostic? Does he deny that these events happened? No, of course not. In a sense, he assumes that they happened. There's a sense in which Cunningham falls into this error because he's so familiar with all of this, it doesn't register onto him how important it is. But the history as a history seemingly plays no part in his understanding of the Christian religion. The coming of the kingdom of God through a series of historical events is not regarded as the foundation and the bedrock of the faith. Rather, a series of ideas about God and man have moved into first place. These ideas are true enough, but they mean nothing if God has not brought us into his kingdom through these historical events. This fact Cunningham does not clearly see. And he does not see it because the Gnostic tendency has blinded him to its importance. I'm just trying to illustrate that this kind of floats around in the history of the church. Well, the pervasiveness of Gnosticism and ideological thinking. I'm going to give some more illustrations more broadly. I have to go a little bit faster here, but I can refer to, in discussing culture, Stoicism, Peter's essay, The Stifled Heart, Stoicism and its influence on Christian piety. I'll give you a good summary of this a good discussion of this, which I'll just quickly summarize. The Stoic says, A, we don't want to be emotional. We want to hold ourselves in check. We want to be as timeless and immovable as possible. Not like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, who says there's a time for this and a time for that. There's a time to cry and a time to laugh. Not like David in the Psalms, who's screaming and yelling at God or who's dancing. No, we want to be unflappable. Stoic. In the Roman culture, men like Seneca, Cicero, and Marcus Aurelius are great Stoics. And people are always reading these guys. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, who persecuted the church. Because the church is not Stoic at all. Early medieval Western Christianity, you get this coming in with asceticism. Keeping the body under check. Wear a hair shirt. Put rocks in your shoes. Don't get married. Go out and live on a pillar. Don't bathe. Asceticism, virginity, perpetual virginity is better than marriage. All of these ideas come in. They're anti-worldly. The world is defined as physical stuff rather than as sin. And part of it is the notion that the mind doesn't sin, but the body does. Actually, it's more the other way around. Natural law from Stoicism comes in. It's equated with biblical law in men like Aquinas, but whenever you start using the rhetoric of natural law, it starts to take a life of its own. Natural law is the idea that there are a lot of things that never change in history because they're absolutely natural. 
You wind up eternalizing things in history that in fact are changing. When you get to the Renaissance, Stoicism, this anti-physical view of the world comes back with full force. And men like Petrarch, Erasmus, Calvin starts here. And that's why there's a good deal of Stoicism in Calvin. He starts by translating Seneca's De Clementia. All of this is associated with the idea that emotions are dangerous. The physical world is dangerous. I've got you some quotations in your text, I think, don't I, from Calvin. I think we'll move past those. Dancing, fine clothing, jewelry, instrumental music. Those things are all dangerous in Geneva and the Swiss Reformation. Luther was a lot better on these points. The result is we get a cult of plainness in our churches, which stands against the biblical notion of visible glory. Black robe is awfully plain compared to this. That's why I've got it on. Plain white walls. Plain music like the Scottish Psalter. It doesn't get much plainer than that. It doesn't get a whole lot uglier than that either. Everything is plain. Well, plainness is not the same thing as simplicity. Rituals are to be simple. The idea of an elaborate ritual is an oxymoron because a ritual is by definition a simplified encapsulation of a larger full experience of life. Similarly, this is simple. You can go to churches where the vestments where the minister wears are extremely complicated. They've got special cuffs and special shoes and special this and special that and they've got about 150 different things on. Well, that goes against the principle of simplicity. But simplicity is not the same thing as saying everything's got to be black and white and plain. Let's take all the color out of it. Let's make the music as unrhythmical as possible. Everything has to be common meter. Not like a Genevan jig. Very plain. You also get stoic, anti-emotional, anti-physical models in Calvinistic political and intellectual thought. The Vindicie Contra Tyrannos, one of the important political documents of early Calvinism, pointed against tyranny and authorizing limited forms of resistance against tyranny, was authored by a man named Lucius Junius Brutus. Well, that wasn't his real name. His real name was Philippe de Plessis Mornay. But as a pen name, he takes a Roman rather than a Bible name. He doesn't call himself Ehud. He calls himself Brutus. Not the Brutus who killed Caesar now, but the Brutus who killed the wicked king Tarquin the Proud. Natural law comes in a big way. Cicero is a major influence on the American founding fathers who called themselves Publius. They didn't call themselves Solomon. They didn't make their architecture look like Hebrew architecture, but like Roman architecture. The curriculum in New England colleges was full of Cicero. Rationalism came in through such men as Ames and Raymond. The sacraments lost importance, became ace of devotion. The Great Awakening destroyed what remained of sacraments and theocracy and an external kingdom orientation. And by emphasizing the internal movement of the soul, led in the next generation to Unitarian Stoicism. American Christianity is characterized by a fear of alcohol and a fear of salt 
and pepper and ketchup and mustard and tea and coffee. We associate those things with Mormons now, but they used to be all over evangelicalism too. All over Methodism. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency are the American ideal, not the Christian ideal. Other dependency. Men aren't supposed to cry. In fact, you find that the man-woman bipolarity is set out in terms of intellect and emotion. Women are emotional and men are intellectual. Well, that's pagan. That's not the way the Bible sets it out at all. The biblical picture is that men initiate things and women finish things. Women live longer than men do. Men start things, women finish things. Women glorify things. Adam comes first, then Eve, but at the end we're all bride. Then the main distinction between men and women is eschatological. It's in historical timeline. But if you don't think that way, you read all the stuff about marriage and it talks about headship. The man is the head of the family. What that means is man is a hierarchical boss. But in the Bible, headship is primarily a temporal term. The first word in the Bible is head. At the head of things, God created the heavens and the earth. But rosh eat, resh, rush, head, headwaters. That's the idea. Moses, as the head, goes into the wilderness and experiences things, and then the body does. Jesus, as our head, is the pioneer. Then the body follows. The primary idea of headship in the Bible is leadership, the one who initiates things, the one who starts things, and the body is the one who completes and finishes things. So men are not supposed to be glorious. They don't glorify themselves, but women are. It says Jesus has no form of communist that we should desire him. That's what men are like. Men start things out before glory comes, but women complete things. In the ordinary marriage situation, the man will die before the woman and she will complete the life of the marriage. It's the way God made the world. And you see, that doesn't mean the man isn't in charge, but it means the whole concept of being in charge is grounded in the more profound idea of being the one who comes first and starts things, who initiates things. Well, see, that's a temporal idea. And because we're so time-blinded, we don't see it. Now, almost all the literature out there either says men and women are equals, or else it says the man is the boss and the woman is the slave. That's what you pick up. Women are emotional and men are not. Well, that's foolish. I'm not here to preach on that. I'll preach on that some other time. American Christianity, you get this agrarian ideal. We all ought to be back on the farm. Because when you live with animals, you're more spiritual than if you live in a city with people. Yeah, well, you believe that. You're really stupid. Now, people have this idea that people who live out in the country are less depraved than people who live in the city. They're just depraved in different ways. They have their own opportunities for depravity. It doesn't matter whether you live in the country or in the city. It's true that if you work with your hands and you plant trees and you work with animals, that does something to you. But if you live in the city and you go work on an automobile in the assembly line and you come home and deal with your family, that does the same things to you. Okay? It's not an issue. But you get this, you know, people in America, they think, hmm, old country folk, they're better than city folk. You just go ask the Christians who live out in the country if that's really true. The biblical picture is that we're moving from the country to the city. And rejecting that, you see, wanting to stay in the past, stay with the agrarian situation, is another rejection of history and another manifestation of this deep-rooted anti-time sensibility.
Well, how about in liturgics? Well, look at the Psalter. The Psalter has a dialogical character where God speaks and we talk back. It's one of the most important ways to do it. It has a poetic form. But usually in evangelical churches, the poetic form of the Psalms is set aside because poetry doesn't matter. We just read alternating verses instead of taking note of the poetic structure there. Why? Because art doesn't matter. Sacraments, we've already discussed this. We just ignore the ritual. We only contemplate it. We ignore the details. Have a prayer for the bread. Do it. Everybody eats the bread. Have another prayer for the cup. We ignore that. We don't need to pay attention to the details. Unction is viewed with suspicion. One way or the other, our tradition says anointing with oil is a suspicious thing to do. A lot of Protestants have figured out that you don't have to do it at all. Somebody's sick. They call for the elders. They read in James they should call for the elders to anoint him with oil. And somebody says, well, I read J. Adams, and he says uh, we don't need to do that. In fact, that was just for the first century, so let's not do that. Well, that's no help. Maybe Adams has changed his opinion on that by now, but that used to be what he said. And that's an older idea. goes all the way back to Genesis 3 as an idea. No, God doesn't do that. Well, what is unction? We don't want to call it a sacrament. But it's a miraculous rite that's left in the church, just as laying on of hands is. Really, if we look at the Bible, we've got four sacramental or miraculous actions in the Bible. Baptism, communion, ordination, and anointing the sick. But we aren't sure what to think about ordination and laying on of hands. And we sure don't know what to think about anointing with oil. Does God do something? It's not doctors who do it. He doesn't say call for the physicians and have them anoint with oil. He says call for the ministers of the church and have them do it. But it's not medicine. It's not a rub down. <laughs> but if you start to look at this in the Bible, there's a whole huge theology of it. I mean, the first plant that shows up after the flood is the olive. The Holy of Holies is made of olives. Olive oil is what's used to anoint things. Olive oil is what causes the lamps to shine. Jesus talks on the Mount of Olives. He's almost certainly crucified on the Mount of Olives. He ascends from the Mount of Olives. So there's the whole olive tree history there. In Gethsemane, which means olive press, Jesus is pressed and suffers to squeeze out the olive oil of the Spirit that's given to us. Now, if you are experiencing the judgment of God, you have been pulled out of that olive tree history. But anointing you with oil, it says, raises him up. doesn't say it heals him. It may heal him. But it raises him up and converts judgment into martyrdom and puts you back into that olive tree. So it's a very real thing and has a very rich biblical theological history. But no, we're, you know, goodness gracious me, putting oil on people? Hmm. I don't think Calvin said much about that. We better not do that. It's physical and we blind ourselves to important ministry in the church and we blind ourselves to a huge, vast realm of biblical theology. That if a person perceives that they have fallen out of the blessings of the olive tree history, they can be brought back into that by putting olives on them. Well, another area we could think about in terms of this anti-physical, Gnostic, anti-historical bias is in anthropology. We think that the soul or the mind is more important than the body, but Rosenstock usually points out that the body is what moves the mind into the future. Your mind would never change if your body didn't force it to. We'd all be fat, dumb, and happy and never have to think about anything new if our bodies didn't force us, if the physical world didn't force us to think new things. 
the mind is basically pretty passive. And God is always doing things to us from the outside to change our minds. See, you grow up and you don't have any interest in girls. And girls don't have any interest in guys until their body changes and their body says, you want one of those. <laughs> now, that makes your mind start to have to think about ways to get one of those. And with the girl, it means you get one of those by artistically putting on makeup and dressing in certain ways to look good to those. And with the boy, it should mean you learn to talk as well. You brush your teeth, you start wearing deodorant, and you write poetry in order to get one of those. Your mind is forced to move in new avenues by what your body does. On a simpler level, you get hungry. I want something to eat. How am I going to get it? That forces your mind to figure out a way to make a bow and arrow and go take down a deer and get it and eat it. To figure out a way to make fire. Because your body is forcing your mind to think new thoughts. And in other ways, God uses the outside world to continually change us. You're going along fine in your life. There are exceptions to all of these things, of course. But normally, a young person grows up and he feels relatively secure because his mother and father are there. And even if he gets to be 25 or 30 years old, his parents are still there. But one day, God takes them out of the way, and suddenly you feel, and some of you that, have, you know, if your parents are dead, you know this, you suddenly feel, oh, it's kind of much more on me than it was. There's an umbrella that's disappeared. Your mind and your spirit are forced to move into a new place by the things that are brought into you from the outside. Your body is forcing your mind to change. Circumstances in the outside world are constantly forcing your mind to change. Crises that God brings from the outside. But name one thing that originates in your mind that makes your mind change. Well, nothing. The mind is almost exclusively a responder. Now that should tell us that there's a God. I mean, this is a proof for the existence of God. Not a transcendental one. Boy, this is an imminent proof. The fact that Everything we are is a response to something. means there's got to be somebody behind initiating those responses. I mean, it's not a perfect proof. There is no perfect proof. But it's as good as any of the rest of them. God comes first and we respond. And God comes first to us and all these other things. And God comes first to us by making us go through puberty and making us different. And God makes us hungry and makes us different. And God afflicts us with a sickness and forces us to think in new ways. All of our thinking... And changing is as a result of the physical side of our lives. Now that's obvious, isn't it, when you stop to think about it? All of your thinking, all of it, is a response to the physical external part of your life. You learn to speak English, not some other language, because other people from the outside taught you English. You learn to like to eat steak and chicken and not to wolf down grubs because you lived in a society where chicken rather than grubs is what you grew up liking to eat. Now, if you're really sick and perverted, you can start eating stuff like sushi. But you didn't grow up with it. Okay. You had to learn that. Everything about us in our minds, in our patterns, comes from the outside. And God changes us from the outside. If we don't have a physical body in eternity, then, then what? We need a physical body in the future if God is going to continue to move us from glory to glory. The body is what moves the mind into the future. 
But you see, the stupidity of philosophical thinking is to think that the mind can exist without the body or the mind is over the body. But it is only in the sense that our decisions can counteract the movements of our body. We can say, no, I won't have that other donut I want. But your body wants that donut. And that's why you're thinking about the donut, you see. Your mind is thinking about that donut because your body wants it. It didn't just come into your mind from nowhere. I'm not going to say any more about that. Time is a wasting in law. The pagan view of law is that justice is a balancing of scales. Biblical view of law is transformational. Justice is transformational. You get down to the Sabbath here and the debts are canceled because people have changed and history has changed and the world has changed. You get down to the Sabbath year See, if you borrow money from me and I'm supposed to pay it back and I can't get it paid back and the Sabbath year that debt is canceled, it's because it's no longer the same debt. Because I'm not the same person and you're not the same person. So it's not just a matter of balancing scales in some timeless sense. What I did to you yesterday, you get back at me today. But today is not yesterday. We want to have a timeless sense. There is a balancing but the balancing involves taking into account the change in time. We're ready to think of the Ten Commandments as simply laws from God instead of the Ten Words, which are more than merely commandments. Law is made abstract. The Ten Commandments are ripped out of the Sinaitic Covenant and made into something timeless. We use them that way. The funniest thing to me is to hear all these people saying they want the Ten Commandments posted up in schools and post offices, which I'm all for that. But do they realize that the first four of those commandments don't have anything to do with what they're talking about? They want thou shalt not kill up there, and thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, do they want the one that says you will not make unto yourself any graven image? I don't think that they're thinking. The Ten Commandments is just a symbol for do right. Don't do drugs. That's the third commandment, isn't it? Don't do drugs. Just say no. Yes. But the Ten Commandments come in a historical context, and they're phrased in terms of that context. So they're certainly still applicable, but they're not timeless. Theonomy really just goes a step further and tries to make everything timeless. Instead of taking as it should and it can be improved to do, understanding the law is given by stages. I mean, God gives the law in Exodus, dictates it. 39 years later, Moses, having meditated on it for 39 years in the wilderness, I mean, he didn't have much else to do except sit there and be angry about the fact that he didn't get to go in promised land. So he was really thinking about the law and just how much he was going to enjoy seeing all these people being punished. <laughs> God gives basically a largely social law in Exodus and a liturgical law in Leviticus. Moses thinks about these things for 39 years, certainly better than I've just described. And then he writes Deuteronomy, which pulls these things together and adds wisdom to it. Now, those aren't the same thing. See, this is being revealed in a process of time and stages. It's not timeless. Oh, in terms of being Gnostics, we in symbolism, we think we can do without symbolism. Well, you can't. If you don't have, you don't pay attention to symbolism, symbolism will pay attention to you. You can't escape it. And even when we notice it in the Bible, it's tend to be taken as timeless. Whereas, in fact, 
Symbols in the Bible are constantly changing. God gives a symbol package in Genesis 1. He gives the same symbol package in Genesis 2, only in a microcosm in the garden. That symbol package is reiterated in a transformed way with the patriarchs and their oasises. It's reiterated in a new and transformed way in the tabernacle and so forth. These are symbol packages, but they're changing and existing in time. Gnosticism. Oh, it's just terrible stuff I'm telling you right now. In political thought, it's the tendency to individualism and ideology. Individualism, all that matters is the individual and my thought. But in reality, history is generational and cultural. In the Bible, you're accumulating stuff through your families. A nation accumulates stuff. It accumulates a history and becomes a character. You're transforming in the Bible from an agrarian society to a city society, from the days of Moses to the days of Solomon. But an individualistic piety that ignores time and ignores generations creates a Baptist ecclesiology. Every person has to make his own decision and start up everything anew in every generation. You cannot inherit from the past. You do inherit from the past, of course. But instead of being self-conscious about it and reflecting on it, you try to pretend that it's not there. Reformed people require their children to become Baptists before they can become Presbyterians. So you've got to make your decision before you can come to the table. Ideology is one of the major problems with Gnosticism. You see, we think that if you want to change the world, you just educate people. Get them to think a different way, and the world will change. You know, the old Wonder Woman song. Change their minds and change the world. Wonder Woman. I know you guys all used to watch Wonder Woman. Now you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But change your minds and change the world. We need Christian schools. We need homeschools. We need to educate people. Well, ideology. Ideas implemented by a crusade. That can lead to political action of the worst sort. Well, we're going to force everybody in terms of these ideas. Biblical religion is a whole lot messier than an ideology. Can anyone in this room, just be honest now, anybody besides Mickey and Harold, can sit down and write out a description of every chapter of the Bible? Start in Genesis 1 and tell me what's in Genesis 1, 2, 3, what's in Leviticus 1, what's in Leviticus 2, what's in Leviticus 3, what's in Nahum, what's in Obadiah, what's in Obadiah 2, what's in Obadiah 3. Aha, some of you know that Obadiah only has one chapter. But not everybody even knew that. Can you do that? Can you just give me a capsule summary of what each psalm, what's in each chapter of Proverbs? See, we don't even know that. So how in the world can we have a Christian ideology? There's way too much stuff here to be ideologically packaged. Plus, not only is the information too vast and too rich to be packaged as an ideology, the way we're supposed to transform the world is not just change your mind, but change actions by the Lord's Supper and by learning to greet one another with a holy kiss and by learning to forbear with one another and to one another one another, and to esteem the other better than himself, and to treat the uh, other women as sisters, whatever. All these different things we have to do to create different patterns of life are the way the world has changed. Well, Protestantism 
has very readily, uh, many phases of history, been happy to set aside the repatterning aspect and to shrink the content aspect down to an ideology and then go on a crusade with it. Well, the kingdom is way too messy for that. It's too big for that. But the Gnostic tendency is to come up with a, an ideology that we can say, this is the package, do these things and everything will change. Well, an educational crusade isn't enough. Section 8. Gnostic ideological abstract uh, historical thinking in theology and biblical interpretation. Here again, we'll just illustrate. How do we interpret biblical symbolism? We tend to interpret Bible symbols as abstract qualities instead of as people. But symbols in the Bible are not symbols of abstract qualities. They're symbols of people. For instance, when you hear discussions of the spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives to the church, the gift of administration, the gift of helps, the gift of tongues, we tend to think of those as abstract qualities. Here's this human being here, like me, just a neutral, plain old human being, and God dumps this quality of administrations on him. Or God dumps this quality of tongues on him. Well, that's not a proper way to understand that. These are different people. The gift of tongues is the gift of certain kind of people who are gifted at linguistics. The gift of administrations is the gift of certain kinds of people who are good at organization. The gift of teaching is not some abstract quality that's dumped on a guy, but it's the gift of a teacher. That's a biblical way to understand that language. It's not abstract in the way we think of it. Similarly, the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle, such as the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar, those are not pictures of ideas. They're pictures of people. The lampstand is the priest. The table of showbread is the nation of Israel, which is watched over by the priest. They don't represent some idea of watching, but it represents the persons who watch. It doesn't represent just the idea of being loaves of bread, but the people who are loaves of bread. The altar is a big stomach. It represents a person who eats the sacrifice. Just as on Sunday you eat Jesus' body and blood, so in the Old Testament the altar eats the sacrifice. It goes down inside. Representing the people, the symbolism is all humanocentric. It all represents people. People as various kinds of people, not abstract quality. But Gnosticism, see, ideological abstract thinking tends to make us forget that and treat symbols as if they just represent ideas. We just translate this symbolism into systematic theological ideas and we've got it. No, that will give you a slight handle on some aspects of it, but you don't get it that way. In terms of biblical interpretation, we wind up with a general ignorance of ritual, calendar, chronology, and typology. See, I made the point last night that the ritual calendar in Israel in a shadowy ray replicates the patriarchal history. Now, how many of you had ever thought of that before? You see, we don't think of that at all. We just don't know much of anything about it. It's true, though, because I've said it. If we want to understand biblical interpretation, we have to know stuff like the book of Leviticus, which sets out all the categories. I'll give you a perfect example of that. There are a billion 
New Testament theological books and articles on Pauline theology that discuss Paul's doctrine of the flesh. The word flesh shows up all over in Paul. Spirit wars against the flesh. Flesh this and flesh that. Flesh here and flesh there. I was talking to a man involved in Bible translation a couple of months ago. And he said, I've kind of come to the conclusion that the word flesh in Paul just means human nature. What are all these guys doing? They're all studying Paul to try to figure out what Paul means by flesh. As if Paul said, I think I'll invent this word flesh. Well, no guys, the word flesh occurs about a thousand times in the book of Leviticus. Maybe not quite that many times. But if you want to know what Paul means by flesh, you learn Leviticus, where God defines the term. Paul, as a rabbi of the rabbis, is going to use the word flesh the way it's used in Leviticus. He's not going to come up with a new definition of it. He's not going to use it in some new different way. He's going to use it in the old familiar way that God sets up. And so you've got to understand that the flesh is underneath the skin, but outside the heart. It's that middle part. The flesh is exposed in true leprosy. Issues from the flesh. When you sacrifice the animal, there are certain things you do with the skin, with the flesh, with the fat, and with the blood. What is the flesh? You get a whole series of whole series of information and packages about the word flesh in Leviticus, then you have an idea of what it is. But that information is presented to us as a series of rituals and symbols. <laughs> so it's not readily amenable to systematic theology at first blush. Nowhere in Leviticus does it say, the flesh represents the fallen nature of man considered as his middle life, or something like that. No, you just have to keep reading. Compare the animal and its structure with the human being and its structure and the tabernacle and its structure and all these things and you keep making comparisons until you pick up what the flesh is. And I can tell you right now, if you do that and you read Paul, you won't have any problem understanding what Paul means by the flesh because Paul is writing into that tradition. He's using the word the way God does. Do you know why New Testament theologians don't do that? Because they're New Testament theologians. We've distinguished between the Old and New Testament. They've got all these Old Testament journals and New Testament journals. And the New Testament scholars say, oh, well, you know, it's not my place to discuss, you know, Old Testament theology in Hebrew. I shouldn't touch that. So they wind up twisting slowly in the wind trying to figure out what Paul's talking about. You know, it's not like they never say anything worthwhile, but they sure save a lot of time if they just look back and learn Leviticus first. At any rate... Time is Gnosticizingly closing in on me and making this lecture cut short and become timeless. Biblical history tends to be overlooked. We get a series of covenants, but we overlook. We jump from the kingdom covenant of David to the new covenant, overlooking the remnant and the restoration, which are important transforming periods in history, especially the restoration covenant, because the Gospels in the New Testament are written in terms of it. If you don't know the Restoration Covenant after the exile, you're really going to be at sea in the book of Revelation. When Wormwood falls down into the springs of water in Revelation, you've got to know that Ezekiel's temple has a river flowing out of it, or you will not realize that Wormwood is coming down into the temple. But if you don't know, if you haven't paid attention to the Restoration and the imagery of the Restoration Covenant, and that that is the package into which Revelation is written, you're going to get it all wrong. Well, you don't get it all wrong, but you can get that wrong and a number of other things. We don't do much of anything with this. Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, that part of the Bible history. 
That's a blank in the minds of most people. The restoration sets up a new category that we not only have a king, but an emperor. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, he's not just king, he's emperor. The whole emperor theology will be lost if we don't understand that Cyrus is something beyond David, and Jesus is not just David, he's Cyrus. Such a downplaying of the importance of history is laced into the warp and woof of evangelical thinking, especially since the 19th century. The reading of the Bible as a series of pictures has replaced the reading of the Bible as the history of the coming of the kingdom. A series of pictures replaces the Bible as history. For instance, and this kind of thing goes back long before the Reformation, the narratives of the Bible are usually taken as moral tales rather than as stages of God's development of the human race. Jacob's story is the story of a bad man who was punished by God until he finally became a good man. The story of David and Bathsheba shows us that God doesn't like adultery. So does the story of Samson and Delilah. Note that such moral messages would be valid whether the stories ever really happened or not. See, if all you're getting from the story of Samson and Delilah is that you ought not to commit adultery, that works whether this ever happened or not, or whether it's just a fable, if that's the only purpose of it. It's no accident that after centuries of this kind of moralistic reading of historical parts of the Bible, liberalism arose to claim that these things never really did happen. I mean, Immanuel Kant grows up in the German pietist tradition. So how do you read the Bible as a pietist? Well, you read about, you know, Abraham. Was he a good father or a bad father? You read about Isaac. Was Isaac a good father or a bad father? You read about Jacob. Was Jacob a good guy or a bad guy? Joseph, was Joseph a wise man or a foolish man? Moses, did Moses suffer or not? All you do is you draw out the moral lessons from these stories. Kant comes along and says, hey, if all we need is the moral lessons of the stories, and that's all real religion is, is morality anyway, then the history doesn't matter, and you get liberalism. Aha, you're in real trouble now. We didn't know this was going to happen. we got to go back and look in these Bible stories again and say, no, they're not just stories that illustrate moral points or that give us typological snapshots of Jesus. There's something more than that. Similarly, there's a long tradition of reading Bible history as nothing more than a revelation of the doctrines of systematic theology. The stories are read as teaching election or justification by faith of the two natures of Christ. Again, it wouldn't matter if these stories ever happened or not. They could just be fables designed to teach us truths. Along these lines, we find that evangelicals camp in the New Testament epistles, especially the Pauline letters, because that's where we tend to find doctrine and morals for the church. And there are thousands and thousands of commentaries and millions of essays and articles on those books of the Bible, but you'll search a long time to find a decent commentary on Judges, Nehemiah, or Esther. Well, what is, in fact, the purpose of these stories? Well, I can't do this, you know, but... The history shows us God progressively creating different kinds of people. God takes Abraham out of Ur. Abraham leaves his old city behind. Socrates couldn't do that. When they told Socrates to leave, he said, I can't leave, I have to kill myself. You can't leave if you're a pagan. There's no place to go. Abraham is able to leave a city behind and do something Socrates couldn't do. And that's just the beginning of biblical history. Abraham becomes a new kind of person, a person who can leave one home behind looking for another one. 
Not till Virgil's Aeneid do you have the same kind of story in paganism. And who knows how much Bible influence there might be in that. It's hard to leave home. Abraham eventually becomes the kind of person who can sacrifice his son. And God makes him a new kind of person, and that's inherited by his children. And they become, Jacob becomes the kind of person who can wrestle with God and supervise a whole bevy of sons. Joseph becomes the kind of person inheriting that who can take the gospel to the Gentiles. And God is constantly transforming people and making new kinds of people. So this history, and then we're plugged into that history so that we inherit all of that, all that growth and development. Now see, that's not just moral tales. That's something that's really happening in time and history. Now we can't talk at length on that. I just wanted to point it out that that's the proper way to read these things historically. Ritual, in terms of time and history. Ritual is a series of actions in a flow of time that encapsulates the larger life of man. Ritual is a series of actions in a flow of time that encapsulates the larger life of man. Ritual is a microcron. True ritual keys a person into God's way of living in history. It's his purpose. But not only is ritual regarded with grave suspicion in evangelical churches, but biblical rituals are studied only as snapshots of the work of Jesus. Similarly, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, and Ezekiel's visionary temple, each of which is described over the course of many chapters in the Bible, are studied, when they're studied at all, only as so many pictures of Jesus in the church. They're made timeless. Nowhere are these things discussed in terms of their consciousness-transforming impact on the developing life of God's community in time and history. What happened to those people who came out of Egypt when God dumped all this stuff on them? How did it change them and make them different kind of people in time and history? That kind of thing is not discussed. The question is never asked, let alone answered. How did the presence of these structures and rituals change the people from an old kind of people into a new kind of people over the course of centuries? From what we've seen, the tendency in the evangelical reading of biblical history and other branches of the church are no better has been to convert history into pictures. The stories are illustrations of moral matters or doctrinal matters. To be sure, moral and doctrinal matters do factor into the historical narratives, but the overall meaning of Bible history is God's development of his daughter into a bride for his son. But after centuries of merely illustrative and pictorial readings of the Bible, it can come as no surprise that evangelicals readily take to a merely pictorial reading of Genesis 1. Hey. Genesis 1 records God doing a series of transforming acts over the place of seven days. But nah, we're not used to reading the Bible to see God doing transforming things in history. We just read it for pictures and illustrations. And so we look at Genesis 1 and say, ah, it's not history, it's just six big ideas. Framework hypothesis. Biblical history is a history of transformations in time. Jacob is transformed from one kind of man into another new kind of man. And not from sinner to saint. That's not the transformation in Jacob's life. It's a transformation from a son into a father. Israel, as a nation, is transformed by the Sinaitic law with its rituals and tabernacles into a new kind of nation. There is no historical narrative anywhere in the Bible that's not a narrative of a transformation. And the historical progress of all the narratives is a history of progressive transformation. We don't tend to read the Bible that way. It's a little bit harder to do. 
Another aspect of this I've got down here just a minute. We're just illustrating all over the place. We tend to treat Paul as if he were a systematic theologian, whereas Paul's letters are intimately connected with the historical situation into which he wrote. He talks about the righteous Gentile in Romans 2. He means God-fearing Gentiles. It's not a theoretical abstraction. Romans chapter 11, where he talks about the future conversion of Israel, is actually the climax of the book of Romans. Romans is not a treatise on justification by faith. It's a discussion of the Jew-Gentile problem and how those interrelate and are being made into one church. Now, the way that's happening is God is justifying them by faith. And so he immediately turns to justification as the explanation for it. So the Reformation reading of the book is correct, but it's not complete enough because it tends to be timeless. Along these lines as well, Gnosticism, the Gnostic tendency transforms prophecy into apocalyptic. Apocalypticism is an escape from history, responsibility and suffering in union with Christ, and transformation. See, that's what we're called to. We're called to be in history. and We're called to get along with other people. We're called to suffer along with Christ. But the apocalyptic says the world's coming to an end. So we don't need doing this. We're going to be raptured out of it. We're going to be raptured out of the tribulation. Now we're going to go through the tribulation. Biblical prophecy is not an escape from the world, but an impetus back into the world. It's an impulse to history. The prophets say, judgment is coming. You better shape up. And if it's too late to shape up, then... The judgment is now, and history is going to be different on the other side of it. And so, get to work. The prophets always say, get to work. They don't say, go out on top of the hill and wait. Prophecy keeps telling us that the world is coming to a beginning, not to an end. Matthew 24 says that these events are the birth pangs of a new age. Summer is near. I don't have time to go further here. One other thing I want to add, we're almost done, and this is not marked in your notes, but this will be letter I. Another aspect of a non-historical, non-time-oriented reading of the Bible is what I call recapitulation mania, especially in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation actually is sequential. Certain kinds of things happen more than once because history is full of the same kinds of things happening over and over again. But it becomes very easy to say the book of Revelation is a series of recapitulations. The trumpets cover this ground, then the bowls cover the same ground again, then the millennium covers the same ground again, and every new section of Revelation starts back at Pentecost and covers the same ground. That's not a coherent way to read the text, but it's a very easy way to read it if you have decided that looking at historical sequence is not terribly important. If you're just going to read for ideas and themes instead of for history. So I wanted to make that point. The text itself will have to tell us whether there are any recapitulations or not. But just jumping to the conclusion of their recapitulations all over the place in your interpretation of Revelation or any other part of the Bible is something that's real easy to do if you have a Gnostic tendency and should be much harder to do if you don't. Well, there has been reconstruction already begun in our circles. Calvinism had a bit more promise than early Lutheranism and Catholicism did because the Lutheran theology went from Luther's... Luther was all over the place and had a tremendous richness in his theology, but his law-gospel approach 
was isolated out fairly early on. And that's fairly logistic. you got law, you're convicted, you're saved by the gospel. You're not going to do as much with time and history if that's all you're going to focus on. Instead, you're just going to see law gospel over and over again in every passage of the Bible, which tends to be what starts to happen in Lutheran scholasticism. In Calvinistic scholasticism, you started off saying, okay, history is important, let's look at the succession of covenants, but that died off pretty quick, and Calvinistic scholasticism wound up talking about predestination all the time. But there was, in early Lutheranism, and especially in early Calvinism, some study of the succession of the covenants in time and a post-millennial expectation of the future, a notion, the idea that the kingdom grows and develops in history was there, although it came to be short-circuited. There was still within Protestantism a tradition of study in chronology. A lot of chronological studies continued to be done until that was killed in the late 19th century by the Princetonians. Optimism, post-millennial optimism, continued to be the main focus in the church until the end of the 19th century. We've had something of a setback in the 20th century with the development of amillennialism. History stops being revealed, real. The Skilder movement in the Netherlands, which was answering Karl Barth's timeless theology, said history is real and we need to pay very close attention to every historical event in the Bible and how it's developing. Reconstructionism, by emphasizing postmillennialism and to some extent a return to preterism, re-emphasized history. These are all fits and starts. We have others in the 20th century really insisting on the importance of history, men like Rosenstock Husey, René Girard, N.T. Wright, Milbank, I guess. These are guys that uh, are just household words around here. At any rate, in conclusion, the more we become at home in the historical character of Revelation as a dialogue between God and His images that takes place in historical circumstances, the more we will appreciate the temporal character of biblical language. Only a generally preterist approach to biblical prophecy, which takes time texts seriously, does justice to the nature of biblical revelation. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.